this was no ordinary <laughs> vaccination. Was it an emotional experience for you today? Yeah, it was. It really was. It's been uh, an intense year. To say that Dr. Brad Youngren has a unique perspective on COVID-19 would be an understatement because he actually has multiple perspectives. Dr. Youngren is the chief medical officer at Seattle-based healthcare startup 98.6, which has seen interest in its on-demand virtual care skyrocket amid the pandemic. He's also an emergency physician and the medical director for emergency preparedness at Evergreen Health Medical Center in Kirkland, Washington, which was the first hospital in the country to manage an influx of COVID-19 patients earlier this year. You know, working through this massive growth at 98.6 and and, and seeing how we can support the country at scale, um, and then also the, the individual work taking care of patients at Evergreen, is, it's definitely been tasking a time. It's, it's been uh, an emotional experience. And he's been on the front lines before, literally, as a former U.S. Army physician who earned a bronze star and the combat medic badge for his service in Iraq. So it was with a sense of hope and cautious optimism that he received his first dose of COVID-19 vaccine last week, along with his Evergreen colleagues. So just to, to see sort of the you know, light at the end of the tunnel, the, that sort of sense of hope that comes from sort of interval change in how we're managing this pandemic. Dr. Youngren and his colleagues are careful to note that we're not out of the woods yet. But even when the world can put the pandemic into the history books, he says COVID-19's impact on the science and technology of healthcare will endure. Dr. Brad Youngren reflects on the past year and talks about what's next on this episode of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast. I'm GeekWire editor, Todd Bishop. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is sponsored by Primera Blue Cross, providing comprehensive health benefits and tailored services to approximately 2 million people, from individuals to Fortune 100 companies. Learn more about how Primera is innovating in healthcare at Primera.com slash innovation. I spoke with Dr. Brad Youngren on Christmas Eve, just a couple hours after he received his first dose of vaccine. Could you give me a thumbnail sketch of your career in medicine, how you got to this point? Yeah, so I went into emergency medicine. I, I went to the military medical school in Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and I went into emergency medicine, primarily interested in both emergency medicine, but also disaster medicine was an area of interest of mine, humanitarian work. Um, and so that was uh, what I kind of did in the military till about 2010. I was uh, ran what was called the disaster response team for the, the western half of the United States for the Army and was an emergency physician uh, at Madigan Army Medical Center in Tacoma, Washington. Um, what happened earlier in my career was I got involved in some technology procurement of the battlefield during the, the combat uh, uh, conflicts in both Afghanistan and Iraq. We were obviously bringing new technologies on the battlefield, uh, example being the new Sonosite 180 had just come out. Um, and we were deploying that as the first sort of portable ultrasound machine. And what I, what I saw from that work was the scalability of technology, how it really scaled to save lives and became a very uh, big interest of mine and sort of was a large large factor in sort of this change in my career was I finished up my time in the military, uh, almost, I think, 14 years uh, of, of service, and then uh, went to Evergreen as, a, as an emergency physician to take over as director of preparedness there, but immediately got involved in, in technology work, um, 
was the chief medical officer at a company called Movisante, which was an ultrasound company that was using a Windows phone back in the day, uh, and uh, was their chief medical officer for a number of years. Movisante was the first FDA-approved mobile phone device in the country, so we're doing a lot of initial work on just how uh, describing to the FDA and others how the phone could be leveraged as a real medical device and tool. Uh, went from there to a company called Shift Labs, which is mostly in the global health space, which is really exciting to get an opportunity to, to go to places like Haiti and do some on-the-ground work. Uh, and um, then uh, followed that as a chief medical officer for a company called Q Health, which is down in La Jolla. They've been involved uh, in, the, in the news a lot lately because they have a COVID, a COVID test. It was used, I believe, by the NBA and so on and so forth. So I was with them for a number of years working on uh, at-home testing platforms and how that could impact uh, sort of the flow of patients and the information they could receive as it related to testing. Later, he would meet Robbie Cape, the CEO of 98.6. I um, got to know Robbie through uh, some friends at Microsoft and saw what he was putting together and just saw that, again, coming back to that notion about scalability, seeing what he was putting together in the team, realizing this really could be something that fundamentally changes the way that medicine is practiced globally. If we can build software that supports the practice of medicine, that is, uh, there's nothing more um, equaling in the, in the context of health equity than leveraging software in that way. So it was a very exciting opportunity and came to, to 98.6 at the beginning of 2017 and have, have been there ever since. You've maintained, though, regular hours at Evergreen Health, it sounds like. Yeah, I maintain my clinical practice there. Uh, over the years, they've been really supportive of it. I've been able to assist them intermittently in, in director roles administratively as, as well um, over the years. But And then as, as my focus has really shifted to 98.6, I've decided, at least for now, to maintain my clinical practice. And, you know, it's been certainly an honor to, and a privilege to support families uh, during this pandemic crisis as a practicing physician. So I'm really, really glad I've held on to my practice and been able to do so. With that background, the lens through which you're viewing this pandemic and the impact of COVID-19 must be very different from many other people, even perhaps many other people in your profession, given that you're focusing on technology, you have the experience in the army, you've been in crisis situations. How would you assess what's happened over the past year? Not a small question, I know, but what's your perspective? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of the things we always would talk about in preparation, being interested in disaster medicine was these these sort of scenarios and, and, and thinking about how we could, what we would need to do as a medical community. It's been interesting. I, I'm fortunate to sit on a committee called the Disaster Medical Advisory Committee, which is a group of about 20 physicians that support Department of Health for the state of Washington, specifically focused around pandemic response. So again, it's another another different approach, which given me an interesting perspective to see as these sort of state level issues are coming in. How do we deal with remdesivir distribution? How do we make sure it's ethical? How do we make sure that the state gets uh, monoclonal antibody distributed? These kinds of issues. And so it's another another uh, aspect of, of, of what, what I've been really uh, focused on the last year. Um, it's been interesting to sort of intertwine and see how technology in general is playing a role in how we uh, approach this really all across the board, software technologies that are helping us track patients better to obviously the technology that has gone into the development of these vaccines, really taking something that would take multi-billion dollars a year and typically 20 years of research and really de-risking it for the pharmaceutical industry in an effort to, to speed up uh, 
how fast we could try vaccines uh, in in phase two and phase three trials, which is what you know we've just sort of completed prior to uh, uh, getting the EUA approval for both Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. So really bringing that all together and and seeing how the technology we've been building in 98.6 can play a role um, as it relates to pandemic response. Now we've, as an example, we've had a relationship with HHS BARDA, the same organization that's done a lot of the funding for the vaccine development. Um, and we are really one of the few software companies that uh, has has a ongoing projects with them. We had one with influenza where we were using our, our data to understand where we were seeing hotspots of influenza. And now we're actually doing some COVID work as well around uh, along the same vein, which is we have a, a 24-7 national platform running all the time, which allows us to use natural language processing and AI to pull the data out to understand uh, where, where can we see hot pockets of people getting sick. So again, these sort of like layering the technology, some of the real clinical experiences I've had as an emergency physician and as director of preparedness and kind of bringing this stuff together in a way that, um, you know, unfortunately has been, you know, the focus for the last year. Um, but uh, there's there's some really interesting things that are coming out of that that I think will impact how we approach these kinds of pandemics or, or disasters uh, in the years to come. Have you treated uh, COVID patients over the past year? All the time, all the time in the ER. When I'm when I'm working clinically in the emergency department, certainly do. Yeah. How does it compare to a typical day pre-pandemic? How has the past year compared? Yeah, I think it's you know the when asked and I do some work where I talk about COVID to the company and do sort of weekly AMAs to bring them up to speed on the science. And one of the things I've been talking to them recently about is this um, this comparing it to my time in in, in the army when. When you're when you're in combat for a year, which is where I was in Iraq for almost a year to the hour, um, and that sort of battle rhythm you develop because you're basically on all the time, and you, there, there's a level of fatigue that comes from that kind of work that um, you know seeing, we're seeing a lot written about the impact of of COVID nineteen and uh, on the healthcare worker and uh, not just the physicians, the nurses, and the, the janitors and health uh, people who are cleaning the rooms. I mean, it's impacting the entire healthcare system and. These are very um, stressful times uh, from that perspective that go beyond just our general worry as citizens of the United States. Um, and that it certainly can be very tiring, even just from the physical perspective, because in, in patients of interest or active COVID-19 patients, we're wearing personal protective gear, which takes some time to methodically take put it on and you need to methodically take it off and uh, we have partners sort of that can check us in some of these things, especially early on as we were kind of getting into the rhythm of this. Now it's an everyday occurrence clinically, so it's it's quite quite different now. We've been we used to do it in little spurts, you know, for a day or two of training and or um when H one N one came out, we certainly were ramped up for that. Or uh, we had a couple patients of interest related to when Ebola was a concern. Um, but those were those were very far and few between and for a very short period of time. This this is very different. This is required you know, Evergreen was really the first hospital where we discovered any significant amount when Dr. Frank Rito sent those uh, swabs to the CDC. And so from day one, we were all of a sudden inundated with multiple patients with COVID who are already in our hospital. And, you know, it's been essentially nonstop since that time. Uh, and so that that's the part that I think is interesting to to see it just for myself, too, about how, how do we as healthcare providers take, take care of ourselves and knowing this is going to be uh, quite some time still before we get widespread enough vaccination to actually have an impact uh, on, on herd immunity, you know, as, 
And so we're certainly, uh, it's, it, it's exciting and to see the vaccine come, uh, you know, I, I saw yesterday we've had, you know, over a million people vaccinated in, you know, about a week or less, which is amazing to think about the amount of people volunteering their time to, to make that happen. Right. Um, and the, the, the focus and energy on that. Um, but we have a long ways to go to get there where, where, where we'll sort of come to the new normal, which it obviously is not going to be like the old normal. But that is just the beginning of COVID-19's impact. We'll have more next with Dr. Brad Youngren, the chief medical officer at health tech startup 98.6. This season of the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast is presented by Primera Blue Cross. At Primera, we talk about what we do all day. We offer access to healthcare. The card in the pocket allows people to go get access to healthcare. Dr. John Espinola is Executive Vice President of Healthcare Services for Primera Blue Cross. The challenge we have is that we know that the healthcare that they get access to doesn't work as well as it could. So we have a duty at Primera to make healthcare work better. That's our job. We give people access to healthcare, yet we give them access to something that's subpar. We have a moral and fiduciary obligation to do better. We're going to do it in partnership with those who may touch the moment of care, providers, innovators, entrepreneurs, all of these are going to help us move in the direction we need to to make healthcare work better. We're bold enough to take the risk to try to do something that'll make a difference and learn from it and be better along the way. To find out more, visit Primera.com slash innovation. We're talking right now, and I believe you were just vaccinated within an hour and a half or so ago. Yeah. This was no ordinary (laughs) vaccination. What was going through your mind as you got it? I think I was, I was thinking about just impressed with the, the organization at Evergreen and just the people volunteering to give the shots, to contribute time during the, you know, the holidays to, to try and accelerate this forward. The, the, hope, the hope around that, the being proud of science, um, you know, being a, a scientist, a physician, it's just great to see, to see the world really come together uh, and really was the world uh, contributions from the United States, but many other countries as well to get to where we're at right now related to this response and uh, just quite a bit of excitement and not what I guess excitement would be too much of a word, but the hope is certainly was, was you could feel it a bit today as people were lining up and getting their shots efficiently through the, the system. There's certainly a lot of work to go and it's, it's tough in the context, you know, I'm going, I'll be back at work in the ER and that juxtaposes the, the amount and in, in intensity as COVID numbers have been rising or we've certainly been seeing higher, higher incidences of percentage of patients who end up being COVID positive and certainly impacting our, our work. And we're seeing lots of more tragedy and you're dealing with these families tragedies over the holidays. It's certainly um, a, a very hard juxtaposition to the, to the experience of the vaccination process, but none, nonetheless, it is a, a step in the right direction for us. So that's encouraging to see. Would you have ever imagined that you'd be getting a, a vaccine less than a year, less than a year since you first started treating patients with this disease? I did not have that kind of hope. I mean, I really thought it was going to take longer based on what we've ever seen in the past. So it's just an amazing feat of science that will go down historically for many, many years about, and I think the other thing too, I, I'm hopeful around is one thing I learned from um, my experiences in combat is we learned and changed a lot of our approaches to trauma management as physicians based on the experiences we were having uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And those experiences, technologies, things that were developed by companies are things we use today in, in general practice in the emergency department and civilian settings. And I think the, 
that you know these vaccines, although uh, previously proven in a very limited scale um, through Zika and Ebola, uh, the mRNA approach was really un- untested. So this is an encouraging uh, way that we could approach vaccination uh, in the future. Um, and so that that's a whole new branch of science. That's you know which hopefully will have a lot of benefit for other kinds of disease processes that we we sort of endure as human beings. Did you get the Moderna or uh, Pfizer vaccine, or do you know? No, I, I do know because you get a you get a card that shows what you got and all that, and there, there's a CDC app you you can sign up for in the moment uh, and to help you track it. And uh, and so I got the Moderna vaccine today, so um, it was um, painless, honestly, and uh, no different than a flu vaccine or anything of the nature. I feel fine right now. Uh, most of my friends who've been getting the last week with really minimal side effects, less than I think we even anticipated, to be honest. Um, and so that's in- encouraging. And then we'll have to get the, the second dose uh, in the weeks to come. Being in the Army, I was uh, subject to pretty much whatever vaccine existed uh, prior to, to deployment they, they uh, in- inoculated you with. So I had anthrax, uh, smallpox uh, in the arm, which is nothing like right before you deploy for a year to have smallpox that you have, or cowpox, the smallpox vaccine that you have to cover up. And, uh, but the, the anthrax vaccine is actually quite painful and there's, it's multiple, multiple shots. So this was a walk in the park, honestly, compared to 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 that vaccine series. Uh, so that's encouraging. And I think that my hope is that as people hear the stories of other people getting it, if they're on the fence, that this will be an, an opportunity for them to, to feel more comfortable going forward and, and getting the vaccine as we roll into the multi-millions of people getting the shot that people who've been on the fence will feel more comfortable, hopefully. There've been so many things that have changed. What are the biggest in your mind, the biggest changes you've seen, particularly from a technology standpoint and how enduring do you expect them to be? Yeah, I think that obviously virtual care's acceptance and growth has accelerated massively over the last 10 months. Um, Many health systems that weren't really doing virtual care for primary care, subspecialty visits were overnight forced to shift their entire book of business, all their visits to a virtual care platform. So we learned very quickly how fast we could do that. Um, and, and I think one thing we know, we've known for, for years now is that patients love engaging on, on our platform and they love engaging in technology if it makes their lives easier. They, they want to engage in healthcare in the same way that they do everything else in their lives on demand when, when it's convenient and in a trusted format. And I think that's one of the things that we've always strived to do at 90.6 is create a mobile experience that if you're thinking about seeking care, go ahead and do it. If you're on a bus in between meetings that these, you don't need to, to think about it more than that. You just engage in the app and you're immediately in there talking to a board certified U.S. based physician. And I think a lot of those changes we've seen over time where uh, we know that the, the rapidity of the second visit is quite short, that once people engage in the system, they're very apt to use it again because they, they after the first visit, they're just like, wow, that was convenient. I was able to get high quality information that I trusted, but, you know, maybe get a prescription if it was necessary or not. And then, um, we know that that those changes will be, I think, enduring patients will not want to have to go to the hospital and, and be exposed to, um, unnecessary, you know, illness. If they, if they could do a visit virtual certainly is not the answer for all, all needs in healthcare. Um, and I'm the first one to acknowledge that, but, and, you know, we, if you, need labs done, the question is why ever go to the hospital, even in the context of what we've been doing with COVID, where we've been doing national levels of patient steerage for COVID tests, COVID antibody tests, 
So it's information, but it's also ordering, right? And we have a deep relationship with the lab company to help facilitate making this a really easy experience for patients. But from my perspective, the long-term question that patients are going to be asking themselves is, do I really need to go in the hospital to have my blood pressure managed? Like what's the, what is about going in person that makes a difference there? If I can send the doctor three months of blood pressure data digitally and they can look at the data and review it and decide is my blood pressure medicine appropriate or do I need to change it based on something? Maybe you need some labs done. Those can be ordered virtually as well. But these whole loops and cycles will change the way people think about uh, accessing healthcare. So the irony is, you know, to this point, the, the problem has been that healthcare is so expensive that we really don't want you to consume too much of it because that's it, it's too expensive. But by using technology, essentially, we can start to walk it forward to the place where use as much as you want, like because the cost is, of technology doesn't really change. It's, it's in scale so different than in-person services that if you have a simple question where well, you really shouldn't be going to search engine, like what you really want to do is call your doctor on the phone traditionally and say, hey, what do you think about this? I had a question about something. Maybe it's about the vaccine. Who knows? But like now you can get that access on demand online at scale and, and also see care. That's kind of where I think people are going to be uh, moving to. They're going to expect those uh, using technology to facilitate access to healthcare for them and their families. Um, we see it all the time now. People can buy connected devices on Amazon for less than 20 bucks to take a picture of their child's eardrum. So we have families come in and the chief concern isn't even a, isn't even a text statement anymore. It's like chief concern is here's a picture of my kid's eardrum. <laughs> what should I do about that? That's like, I think the last time I checked those were down to $15, $16 on Amazon. You can have that delivered overnight. And if you think about the, the number of cases of acute otitis media, families are dealing with ear pain related to their children. The thing that you need as a physician is to look at that eardrum. That's the most critical thing to, to you know, have good antibiotic stewardship. You don't want to just throw antibiotics at ear pain. You want to look at the eardrum and make a good clinical decision. Well, now that's something that, the pay, that a family can really achieve on their own without driving in. So just, that's just one of many examples where technology is facilitating a whole new perspective on accessing healthcare. How has the past year and the shift to virtual care impacted 98.6 to, to whatever extent you can say in terms of the, the volume that you're getting? The, the, what has been the impact on the, the company and the care? Certainly, you know, we've done a couple of funding rounds this year. Um, there's in the, in the space in general, there's been a massive shift of, fund in, of funding companies in the virtual care space. Um, we've seen large growth in our uh, in our population that we service. Many new large employers have come on board who are, you know, really wanting to get a virtual solution that could support their population. Um, we were, especially once we started really getting deep into COVID assessment tools and steerage related to lab testing and, and supporting uh, organizations in that way, um, we really uh, have seen a, a large growth uh, in other ways too, which is just, it forced us to really get deep into certain things that we weren't necessarily planning to do on our short-term roadmap. We had different priorities pre-COVID maybe. And so we obviously need to do a bunch of work on how do we ensure that, um, I mean, the, the interesting thing about lab testing as an example is lab testing is very disparate across the country, like what's available, what kind of tests. And we have patients coming in from all 50 states in DC. So all 51 jurisdictions every day, and, and, and you know, many a time, they all wanted the same thing. I, I, how do I get a COVID test? I'm worried I was exposed to someone. I have some symptoms. And you know, building technology that allows that to be a good patient experience has been uh, really exciting, really. It's, it's, 
That's what patients needed. And then this notion really of a physician being in your home at all times. You know, one of the things we we do with patients all the time who come in to the ED who don't meet admission criteria, we say, you know, you have COVID-19, you need to go home and isolate. And, you know, here's these different rules you need to follow. But then you're back at home. You know, you have COVID-19 and it's, it's you know, unsettling and concerning. And But those kinds of support structures that a virtual care solution can provide are something that that um, I think is a, a, a wake-up call for patients. We're like, wow, this is really nice. Like, And it's also we can be able to leverage um, diagnostics like pulse oximetry at home, which is a key feature we're using to decide whether patients meet inpatient criteria. Well, we could tell you that from home now. If your pulse oximetry is 90% and you're home and you're short of breath, you're going to meet admission criteria. So if you go to the ER, you're going to be admitted uh, as long as it's a correct reading in that scenario. So like we can really provide a resource to patients. I know this is, you should go, you know, in this particular scenario, you, you really do need to go to the hospital. Um, and another scenario is saying now, you know, you can sit tight and if just come in, if you're worried, come in another hour, it doesn't matter. Like we're always happy to see those patients. And, and we have seen patients multiple times in a day who just want to check in and, or maybe they feel a bit different and they wanted to check in with a physician about that. So I think those are, those were really, um, unique things to, to COVID-19 where patients are isolating at home in many instances. And of course, in those scenarios, virtual care is critical. I also spoke on Zoom with one of Dr. Youngren's colleagues, Dr. Ettore Palazzo, Chief Medical and Quality Officer at Evergreen Health in Kirkland, who spoke to the massive changes in technology in healthcare brought about by the pandemic. I think just to start with is how we're having this interview right now, right? We are uh, virtually being able to have communications and and the ability to meet with individuals on a moment's notice to uh, go through workflows, to address uh, uh, changes that may be needed uh, at, you know, hour by hour in the healthcare system. The fact that we can do that virtually, and the other thing is do it safely, right? Uh, the way we're doing this, there's no risk of, of transmission of a virus. And so that technology and our ability to be uh, uh, present with one another and, uh, and to work through uh, uh, processes virtually and also with our colleagues throughout uh, the, uh, the state and throughout the country, really, I think has absolutely advanced the care of, of patients presenting with COVID-19 and for any medical issues, for that matter. That same technology then allows us to see our patients when you know, they can't come in and, and be seen safely. And so the virtual visits uh, and those uh, mechanisms to, to see our patients have been a huge advance when um, uh, there were challenges to, to bring them in initially. We, we feel we're, we're able to have patients come into the facility and do that safely with all the safety protocols. The virtual visits uh, absolutely are essential uh, for this work. Back to Dr. Brad Youngren, the emergency physician, military veteran, and 98.6 chief medical officer. After you get the second shot, will that change your behavior? I don't think so. I think, you know, I'm very cognizant of the, the impact and the decisions we make as physicians have uh, on the perception of, of others uh, who, and so until we're really to the, to the point where we've achieved those high, high percentages of immunization, where we really can feel comfortable to change some of our practices as a country. If I take my mask off because I'm vaccinated and I walk by you, that's an uncomfortable experience. You don't know anything about me. And so even just from the perspective of respect, uh, and respecting other people's personal space and their own experiences in, in this pandemic is, I think, important. But beyond that, we have, there's a couple of questions we haven't answered yet, which is around if you're asymptomatic because you've been vaccinated, could you still shed the virus? We have to do some additional 
test to really understand what it means to be immune is a true immunity in the sense that you can't get it uh, and you can't give it to someone else. Like these are things we have to really know before we would actually change our PPE practices and recommendations. But that's the work the CDC is starting to figure out how we're going to get to that point. Um, now that we've, you know, the, the, the trials only were 30,000 patients apiece, but we've already vaccinated a million people in a week. So in short order, we're going to have large numbers of, of, of people who can report out on, uh, you know, like right now we're being asked to report out on our symptoms related to getting the vaccine, which will be helpful for people to understand at scale. What does it, what does it feel like to get the vaccine? But then we can start to track people long-term and understand how long is your immunity? Are you shedding, you know, what's the risk related to that? And as soon as we start to get that data, I think we'll have a better sense of what our new, new normal will be as it, as it relates to the new CDC recommendations that they'll have down the road here. Was it an emotional experience for you today? Yeah, it was. It really was. I think it's been uh, an intense year, um, you know, working through this massive growth at 98.6 and, and, and seeing how we can support the country at scale. Um, and then also the, the individual work at taking care of patients at Evergreen has, has been, um, it's definitely been tasking a time. It's, it's been uh, uh, an emotional experience. So just to, to see sort of the, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, the, that sort of sense of hope that comes from sort of interval change in how we're managing this pandemic. I mean, we've had sort of lukewarm, uh, you know, success on the therapeutic side, right? In terms of, we haven't had some massive drug that's really changed the course of how we're treating or protecting patients. So the monoclonal antibodies is certainly a hopeful step in the right direction, but there's still a lot of data to be learned from uh, those therapies. So yeah, just a lot of, uh, um, hope and just again just being proud of seeing all the people volunteering their time on Christmas Eve to, to come in and help give other people vaccines and the whole Evergreen staff just banding together to, to execute on the mission. Evergreen's a community hospital in Seattle and it just it happened to be where, where the virus was discovered and so we've been sort of in sprint mode since late February really um, so it's a it sort of was a monumental time I think for the organization to sort of move into this sort of next phase I guess of the pandemic. Dr. Brad Youngren, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the GeekWire Health Tech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast app and tell a friend or a colleague about the show. See more episodes at geekwire.com slash health tech and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Thanks to our sponsor of Health Tech Season 5, Primera Blue Cross. You can find out more about their work at primera.com slash innovation. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more, go to geekwire.com. You can sign up for our podcast newsletter to hear all of our shows. I'm GeekWire editor Todd Bishop. We'll be back soon with another episode of GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast.